Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got me, Rachel Sherlock, and with me for this episode is Phoebe Watson. Hi guys! We are recording this on Palm Sunday. Which seems oddly appropriate. Yes, and it's going to go up on Good Friday, which is also appropriate, although deliberately so. We did pick this particular topic out because we wanted something that fit in with the theme of Good Friday, although we're not really touching on the topic of Good Friday, that's a pretty big one, but we are going to talk about violence, and specifically violence in films. Yay! Phoebe's favourite topic. Definitely. Uh, (laughs) But the reason this came up is that We've noticed something very interesting, which is that there are a lot of different views on how Catholics and Christians should watch violence in movies and whether they should consume it and whether it's appropriate. But the one film that seems to slip past everyone's defences is The Passion of the Christ, which is maybe one of the most violent films you're likely to see as a sort of mainstream audience viewer. There's lots of more violent films in the world, but you kind of usually have to go out of your way to find them. Uh, whereas The Passion of the Christ has been seen by many, many people and is on the most violent end of things that people tend to watch. Traumatisingly violent as well. <laughs> so that kind of sparked an idea for me that it was kind of interesting that while there are many people who see violence in movies as a really negative thing and something to be really avoided, yet at the same time there was this sense of acceptance around The Passion of the Christ. And so I thought it would be interesting to have a discussion on violence in movies and on the place it has in art and culture and all of the things that this podcast covers. So that is the introduction to our topic today. I think it's going to be interesting uh, because Phoebe and I have wildly different preferences when it comes to violence in movies. Yeah, I think we agreed that we're not that different in opinion. Yeah. Like right or wrong opinion at least, but preferences in particular... You tend to be able to tolerate a lot more violence than me. Yeah, um, I a lot of the movies that I have deemed very impactful on my life and very inspiring and also just very entertaining have been movies with a lot of violence in them. I tend to be fairly willing to watch those kinds of movies and fairly happy to explore those kinds of stories, whereas Phoebe, <laughs> less so. <laughs> yeah, to put this in context, we had a house rating back when we were in college of what kind of movies were suitable Mm -hmm. for any of us to watch. Yes. And which ones would work for whichever people. Yes, so Phoebe was in a house with my brother and her brother, and I moved in the following year, although I was a lot in that house. Uh, So the rating predated me, and so the first level of rating was... uh, H for Heather. Heather was also a housemate who is now married to Phoebe's brother. H for Heather, if we're working our way from the bottom up, H for Heather is the lowest possible rating that you could have. There are some universal or general rated films which do not qualify. She does not like tension. Uh, She does not like... Violence, blood, gore, anything. Some twelves may be appropriate, most not. She was the lowest possible bar. Yeah, if she was watching anything that wasn't hate-rated with us, she would have a book in front of her and her headphones in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there um, was no tolerating it. No. And then I was the next level. P-rating. P-rating. And it was generally a little bit of violence, a little bit of tension was okay, but limited. <laughs> Fairly limited. Yes. And... 
you would also have to rate it depending on who I was watching it with. Mm -hmm. Um, So with you guys, I would watch something that was above my rating, but I could enjoy watching, provided I had a pillow to cover my face with every (laughs) now and then. We were watching uh, Mad Max Fury Road earlier this week in preparation for this podcast. And there was one time in particular where you're just like, eyes over here, Phoebe. Look at me, look at me. And then look back. Uh, Although I was amazed that it was only once. Um, Mm. But that's a a movie I enjoy a lot. And I was amazed that Phoebe was. That's the one thing I will say about you, Phoebe, is that you are actually willing to give things a go, even if they are outside of your comfort zone. Even Uh, if they traumatise me. (laughs) And then the next level up. This level up with R.D., R and D. Well, yeah, our our friend Darina was living with us when I was there. So me and Darina were pretty much the same level. I can tolerate lots of violence. Our rating was more about interest. I probably am not as interested in just straight action movies. So the Rachel and Darina rating was more about kind of interest rather than levels of violence or levels of gore. And then the top rating was M.M., which was Michael and Matthew, which was both of our brothers. And so they can pretty much tolerate anything. <laughs> uh, Though but... I interestingly find out that my brother has quite a low tolerance for more ghostly horror and like supernatural activity. Oh, really? Mm. It's it's funny how we all have our own little like areas that we feel comfortable and don't feel comfortable in. Yeah. So we definitely come from very different perspectives on this. I, I like a lot of historical movies and action movies and mobster movies is a particular favorite of mine growing up I used to have sleepovers with my best friend Cara and whereas everyone else in our class was probably watching The Notebook or Titanic or something like that we were watching The Godfather (laughs) and And you will have check when I'm not in so that you can have a movie night with Cara because whatever you're watching will not be p-rated nope So we have differences in our preferences, but I think in preparing for this podcast, we found that our actual opinions on the place of violence in film are not that different. But we're just going to kind of dive in, I think. Yeah. Um, So the first thing that I want to say is I'm going to set up two different camps that exist in the world. Not everyone fits into these, but there are two kind of strong camps. There's a, a fairly secular view which says the things you consume don't impact you as a person and they'll take this as the extreme all the way up to pornography that just because you view something doesn't mean that it has any impact on your idea of a soul or your character or the way that you think that you can completely put up a barrier between the things that you consume and the things that you are and believe and then the other view which I don't want to too negatively characterize because I believe that there's a lot of people who are trying to make the best of the world that they're in, but there's a very cautious view, particularly from strict Christians. It's often quite a Protestant view, but it also comes into a lot of Catholic thinking nowadays as well, which is essentially very suspicious of any kind of media that the world creates, whether it be music, art, culture, and particularly film. I think you kind of meant those are the two extreme views. Yes. Yeah, so it's not that everyone falls into them, but those are the two camps that, let's say, are opposing each other in this view. And most of us are in the middle trying to muddle our way through and and use our judgment and, and prudence to figure it out. But there does exist a kind of very, very hesitant view about any kind of story that portrays negative things and even portrays them in slightly positive ways or corrupt characters that are protagonists or people who are violent that are also trying to do good. So those are the two opposing things and as with all things Catholicism doesn't fit into either of those at all. 
It's not... The both of them always hold two things in tension. Yeah, and I think that's what makes exploring art and culture from a Catholic point of view so interesting, is that it's a continual process of reconciling two very opposing natures that seem to fit together. So I think what, what maybe the best thing is is that maybe I'll try and make a case for violence in movies and maybe Phoebe will try and make a case against violence in movies. The reality is is that both exist and both have their place. And what it ultimately, not to sort of jump to the end of the discussion, but what the ultimate answer is is that as a Catholic, it is up to our own knowledge of ourselves and of the culture that we're interacting with to make a judgment on each specific piece. And so I don't think Catholicism would ever really advocate for a blanket ban on all movies made post-1950 or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm going to be arguing against violence in films full stop. But no. Ex- certain expressions of it, maybe. Well, I think you're just going to be more on the side of, of advocating for a more cautious approach to the use of violence in films from both filmmakers and from what audiences should be willing to expect. Yeah. And that doesn't mean negating it entirely. It just means maybe a more reflective approach than, than me. Which is good, because just because I can tolerate it doesn't mean that that's a good thing or that I don't need to reflect on that either. So... <laughs> The first thing that I was going to bring up is just a quote from the Gospels, and it's Matthew 15.10, where Jesus states, It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. And obviously here he's talking about ritualizations around eating and food and diet, but I think it also applies to the way that we consume the world around us in the sense of consuming literature and and art and culture. I would argue that with a different quote from scripture, Mm -hmm. which says, whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is beautiful, think about such things. Yes. The first point that I would make is that in consuming different types of media and different types of, of art and culture, we all have our own weaknesses and our own tendencies that we bring to them. And so rather than saying a blanket statement across everyone, expecting everyone to feel the same way or have the same failings, that it's really about looking to yourself and looking to the things that trouble you and the things that play on your mind and that might lead you to an occasion of sin. Because this is the thing that comes up in a lot of the writings from popes and and different theologians is that we can advocate for darker stories and we can advocate for things that deal with troubling topics, but that anything that leads you to an occasion of sin is something that you should run from. Absolutely. I would also say that on the flip side of that, there's also a level of entertainment. And if we're talking about violence as entertainment, mm-hmm. leaving aside for a minute violence where it's not supposed to be entertaining, mm-hmm. that there is also an argument there of how much are you willing to accept and not just an occasion for sin, but how much are you comfortable with because you're there to be entertained. Yeah. So for a certain extent, mm-hmm. how much does that violence entertain you? Yeah. And how much is it good that it entertains you? Yeah. And I think those are all really interesting questions. And I've got some... Uh, honestly, it was, this was a wonderful occasion for me. I kind of did an excess of research for this because as soon as I started looking into it, the more that came up, I hadn't really realised how much the church had openly spoken about this. Looking forward to hearing this. Yeah, I've got 
an actual 10 pages of notes here. I will try not to go through everything in it because that, that might take us a while. But the Matthew quote that I just mentioned was uh, pulled out in a particular article, which was on, it's I think it's called Christians and Movies, Recognising the Danger Within and Without. And a really interesting point that he makes, he has a quote here which it says, if something echoes the whine in your heart, it's a good bet that the problem is with you. We give media too much credit for having power of, over us and let ourselves off the hook in the process. It's much easier to blame media for our strains and discontentments than to recognise they come from within. And the context he places this on, he said that he felt that he was drawn to an occasion of sin more frequently looking through a furniture magazine because it made him discontent with his life and discontent with the things in his life and yearn for more material goods. And so he was just making a point that we sometimes only see things like films as the only type of media or music as the only type of media that pulls us away from God. But actually there's a whole range of things that can play on our own specific insecurities and our own specific yearnings and, and broken desires that in some ways we should have a more holistic view of the way that we consume the world. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'm not sure how much I agree. I do agree to a certain extent that different types of media affecting people in different ways, absolutely. Yeah. But I do think that media also has an effect that we do have to be cautious of. Yeah. And while we shouldn't turn around and just blame the media, because mm-hmm. we are the one who are, ones who are consuming that media, so we are still to blame for that action. Yeah. But that it does also have an effect on us. Yeah, absolutely. And that the reason we are compelled to watch movies and experience these things is because on a human level there's something about a narrative or there's something about an emotional tie to these visual arts that draws us and has a deeper meaning for us. Than... Yeah, there's that epic call of the story. Yes, exactly. And there's a really great quote from, uh, this is the National Catholic Register, and I'm going to be quoting him a lot. There's a great, really wonderful film reviewer called Stephen Gradanus who has a website called Decent Films and he writes a lot of film reviews and he has done a lot of thinking and working on this particularly because he says that often when he says that he reviews films there's Christians and Catholics who kind of reply with well why would you bother like none of it's good we should just stay away from all of it and he's making a case for engaging in the culture and engaging in media in the modern age. But he has this great quote where he says, in the wise words of a priest from the oblates of the Virgin Mary, the Catholic Church teaches authoritatively, has always taught authoritatively, and will always teach authoritatively, that the visual arts are a grey area. (laughs) (laughs) So... What's nice about that is, is that it leaves this space for us to battle out these ideas, that there isn't like one right answer that you're going to come up with the direct line of exactly how everyone should approach films or me. Rachel, I'm always right. (laughs) (laughs) And so he goes on to say, grey area doesn't mean that everything is equally worthy of suspicion or that it makes no difference what we embrace or reject. It does mean that there's no getting around the need to exercise prudential judgment and that embracing or rejecting anything should be a qualified and critical act. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was really helpful to feel like there wasn't any one line saying you're on the wrong side of this line. That in some ways it's a great act of trust on the church's part. Uh, You know, and it says authoritatively that like people have this idea that the church really bears down on people and how they live their lives. But particularly in this aspect, it really is down to your own judgment. And you'll get it wrong some of the time. And you'll get it right other parts of the time. But that it is up to you to, to do this. 
Yeah, I was just thinking about that prudential judgment and it occurred to me that like another back to our ratings, mm-hmm. another part of how we always had to rate them was what type of comedy was involved. Yeah. And when we're talking about occasions for thin and parts that we particularly disagree with, mm-hmm. I would almost say that there are some types of comedy Oh, yeah. that I far more strongly disagree with than types of violence. You're actually right. I find it much harder to find comedy films that I can get behind wholeheartedly these days. And I was saying to Phoebe earlier that for me, while I don't find violence that unsettling to watch, that actually I often feel like a lot of the sex scenes or like the romance elements of stories can be done in very exploitative ways that don't really add anything to the story. And I'm sure there's plenty of people who could argue that, well, actually that fight scene didn't add anything to the story and they could probably legitimately do so. But to me, a lot of those scenes are the ones where I feel like, the story doesn't need this. You could have just had them kiss and cut away. I, as a viewer, don't want to have to see this. So in that way, I can kind of get into your viewpoint when I turn the camera towards violence and say, okay, well then that's your point of view with that. I'm sure you feel similarly about sex scenes as well. Yeah. Um, No, it's really interesting. I was thinking about the violence in movies versus sex scenes in movies from the point of view of like how they've escalated over the years. Mm -hmm. And in terms of like what society 50 years ago would accept on screen Mm -hmm. as opposed to what they'll accept now. Yeah. And I think it's very telling that it's the sex scenes that have become far more graphic. Mm. Whereas the violence has escalated but not necessarily to the same extent. I think that's pretty true. Um, Partly because probably film was coming out at the time of the wars and they had a lot of cinematic footage, even of World War I. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the things that they were actually showing on screen. Yeah. Whereas... There was still a a prudishness, we'll put that in inverted commas, I'm not sure, uh, from a Catholic point of view. An intelligent prudishness. Yeah, that limited the amount of sex that you saw on screen. I also think that there's something interesting which says that maybe that violence has a more important place in stories than sex. And I read an article which was from Psych Central on why do people like violent movies. And like I said, I'm going to be quoting a lot of these things simply because I didn't want this podcast to be, I feel this, just to make it all inward reflecting. Because the point is, is that we're talking about how all kinds of people consume this media. So I did want to reach out and do a lot of research for it. But because of that, I will be linking everything in the show notes. So if you want to read any further about them, I will put all of these in the show notes. But this was from a psychology website. And it was saying that the earlier studies suggest that people are not necessarily attracted to violence, but seem to be drawn to violent content because they anticipate other benefits, such as thrill and suspense, the researchers noted. The new study found that such hedonistic pleasures are only part of the story about why we willingly expose ourselves to scenes of bloodshed and aggression, according to the researchers. Some types of violent portrayal seem to attract audiences because they promise to satisfy truth-seeking motivations by offering meaningful insights into some aspect of the human condition. Perhaps depictions of violence that are perceived as meaningful, moving, and thought-provoking can foster empathy with victims, admiration for acts of courage, and moral beauty in the face of violence or self-reflection with regard to violent impulses. Essentially what the article is saying is that people don't necessarily enjoy the violence for the violence, but that they enjoy what that violence provides. Yes, which is a truth about the human condition and a sense that this is life at its most ultimate priority. Like when you're face to face with death, when you're on the edge, like you're not in your mundane life, that this is the extreme of a human condition. And it's at the extreme that you get the perspective of ultimate priority. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, which I think in some ways brings up the aspect of violent films that I think people are most comfortable with, which is didactic moral teaching films. Something like Schindler's List or a war movie like Saving Private Ryan or something like that shows violence in a very profound way and uses violence to show something about human nature, whether it's the depravity that you can go to or the acts of courage that you can rise to and all of those things. And to a certain degree, I feel like most people can kind of agree that those are usually appropriate films to include violence. Yeah, and um, you've got like the good guys versus the bad guys. Yeah. And essentially it's probably one of the only ways left of moral teaching in our movie society. Yeah. That most of the movies don't really have that much of a moral to them. Yeah, not one that true. we can get behind. Yeah, probably. Um, whereas a lot of the violent movies have like fighting for the underdog or even yeah, empathy with the victims. Yeah. Um, or yeah, no, like self-sacrifice, all of those kind of things that we can aspire to. Yeah, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but just to bring it in a little bit now, which is that we're going to talk about the violent and the non-violent hero and who you should really be rooting for in a movie. Is it someone who is like the avenging angel and kills lots of bad guys and wins the day? Or is it someone like in The Passion of the Christ where you see the Christ figure triumphing over violence through non-violence? And while as a Catholic, obviously no, because Christ is the ultimate example, of course that is the ultimate example of courage and the ultimate example of how to encounter violence. However, I think if you think about the long history of the human race, in some ways doing the courageous thing, like standing up in the middle of a battle, is profoundly against our nature because it's not about self-preservation. It's about preserving someone else. And so it is fitting that as Catholics, we admire the people who stepped out of themselves in, in order to defend other people as well. Yeah, absolutely. But that doesn't cover everything, because like I said, one of my favourite movies is The Godfather. You know, you can say they're working on behalf of their family, but you couldn't really argue that they're the, the good guys or that what they're doing is particularly courageous. And so I think what would be really interesting is to look at some of the things that the different popes have said, and they have actually said a lot, which I was kind of surprised to find. So there was one quote that I'm going to pull out from Pope John Paul II in his letter to artists. So he says about the disturbing and immoral themes and subjects in art, he says, even when they explore the darkest depths of the soul or the most unsettling aspects of evil, artists give voice in a way to the universal desire for redemption. Uh, and then the article that I took this from, which was from the Stephen Gray Danis Decent Films website, he goes on to say, true art, humane art, can be profoundly difficult and unpleasant and still represent a human response to the fallenness of the world and of mankind and to the necessity of redemption. Yeah, that's really interesting. Even when they explore the darkest depth of the soul, the artist gives voice in a way to the universal desire for redemption. Even like from a papal point of view, that these explorations of the dark things, and I think that really ties in with what we were saying about the depictions of the crosses and the crucifixions a couple of weeks ago, that we have to be able to engage with the darker parts of the stories. And because even if you look at all of the Bible, particularly the the Old Testament, there's a lot of dark, violent stories in there. And ones there's that, a lot of blood. Yep, and deeply unsettling stories. You know, you even think of Lot and his children, and like there's a lot of things that 
don't make us feel nice and cosy and don't leave us feeling all snugly warm. Yeah, there's a lot of bits like clipped out of the children's Bibles. Yeah. <laughs> Even then you've still got like your portrayal of Noah's Ark where people are drowning on the rocks. Yeah, I have a children's Bible which I adore. I think it's great, but it had some really graphic illustrations of it. And the worst one, as Phoebe said, was well, the worst one to me was this painting of the rain coming down outside Noah's Ark and all of the people trying to clamor in who were left on the outside. And you can see their faces in anguish. <laughs> like, as you can imagine, as a child, that was pretty distressing. Yeah, but also that it is still right for us to portray that and think about that and yes in some ways particularly in the old testament to be challenged by god permitting that yeah or even god in a certain way enacting that yeah and that it can be part of the story of redemption yeah that these broken flawed human beings are still a part of the story of redemption even after the the ultimate example of nonviolence from christ that we still look to the old testament it doesn't while he, Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We don't just do away with it. And so, like I was saying about the different types of heroes, I, I was saying to you that, like, yes, Christ is the ultimate example. But even from within the Bible, David against Goliath is an example. And that's not an example of nonviolence. That is an example of courage of someone much smaller going into a situation where he's way out of his depth and proceeding to fight with bravery. Yeah, that the Christian teaching, that Christ's teaching of turning the other cheek does not implicitly mean that pacifism is right and that we have to avoid violence at all costs. Yeah. I think it's more the realisation that there is a higher way to do things. Mm -hmm. So the martyrs, in their giving of their lives to that violence, mm -hmm. are our highest example yeah. aside from Christ, of that Christian courage, but that it is also right to fight in self-defence and in defence of others. Mm -hmm. I think a really great example, and it's a film example of this, is the film For Greater Glory, which is about the Cristeros in Mexico, which I'll admit I ha I've been dying to watch for ages, but I've only seen Bishop Barron's video where he talks about it. But it actually, it's also in his book uh, Seeds of the World, but he talks about how it's about the part of Mexican history where the Catholic Church was outlawed and priests weren't allowed to wear their priestly garments in public and all of these restrictions were placed on the faithful to the Catholic Church. And the movie generally follows a group of people who actively rebelled and formed a small army called the Cristeros who were fighting the government in order to oppose this incredible injustice against their faith. But at the end, it puts up a title card which shows all of the people who were canonized and or beatified who had suffered through this and had been killed through this repression. But they were all the people who had resisted non-violently. So in some ways, it's not to say that those people who showed incredible bravery in fighting were wrong, but that the ultimate example is this non-violent laying down of your life. Yeah, and I think that can only come in a religious context. That there are definitely situations where you can't do that. I'm going to talk about Hacksaw Ridge later. Yeah. But I think that is an example of where he and his individual pacifism can do very great things. Yeah. But if all the army were to do the same thing he did, 
the world would be overrun. Yes. Like we said, that's kind of the two tensions that Catholic and Christian faith generally hold. It's almost like the supernatural calling to, the, to like, priesthood and vocations. Yeah. That that supernatural calling to lay down your life mm-hmm. is still what we are called to. Yeah. But that if everyone were to do it, like, there's contexts where it's not necessarily appropriate. And if we were all to become priests and nuns, well... Yeah, exactly. No more children. Exactly. And so the next thing that I just want to pull up, which I thought was a really fascinating writing from the papacy, which I'd never even heard of, but was genuinely, as someone who works in media, and clearly I started a podcast, I love art and culture, that it was a really blessing to come across. And it's called the Decree on the Media of Social Communications, or Intermerifica. It was by Pope Paul VI, and it was written in December 1963. And I would really, it's not that long, so, you know, get on vatican.ba. That sounds fascinating, <laughs> because there's always that ongoing debate about social media and yeah. its goods and... Yeah, exactly. And so what this document does is, it, in some ways it's interesting, we were saying it's those two extremes, it really gives huge license while also placing huge demands. So the two paragraphs I'm going to quote here are number two and number seven. But like I said, the whole thing is really, really interesting. So it says, The church recognises that these media, if properly utilised, can be of great service to mankind, since they greatly contribute to men's entertainment and instruction, as well as to the spread and support of the kingdom of God. The church recognises too that men can employ these media contrary to the plan of the creator and to their own loss. Indeed, the church experiences maternal grief at the harm all too often done to society by their evil use. And then this is paragraph seven. Finally, the narration, description or portrayal of moral evil, even through the media of social communication, can indeed serve to bring about a deeper knowledge and study of humanity and, uh, with the aid of appropriately heightened dramatic effects, can reveal and glorify the grand dimensions of truth and goodness. Nevertheless, such presentations ought always to be subject to moral restraint lest they work to the harm rather than the benefit of the soul, particularly when there is a question of treating matters which deserve reverent handling or which, given the baneful effects of original sin in men, could quite readily arouse base desires in them. I love the sentence, Indeed the church experiences maternal grief at the harm all too often done to society by their evil use. So what I love about this document is not that it downplays the effect that these things can have on people, or that it's that idea that it doesn't matter what you consume, but it also does give huge license and huge scope. And not only does it allow it, it lifts it up as a right and proper glory to God. So one of the things that comes out of this really clearly is that not only are these films that we discuss where there's sort of moral instruction in them and they have a deep and and meaningful message that they can give glory to God, but it actually calls out entertainment specifically and that not all films need to have a purpose beyond entertainment. Now, they still need to fit within what it's talking about here, which is the moral order of the world as displayed by the Catholic faith but that entertainment is a good in and of itself. Some of the things I was reading were talking about how it was the reviewer that I was mentioning, Stephen Gradanis, who was saying that people say, wouldn't you just be better praying the rosary or reading the lives of the saints than watching a movie? Now, those things are excellent things to do. I would recommend everyone to pray their rosary and learn about the saints. But that 
there is space within God's creation, within all of our lives, to delight in entertainment. I love the Catholic Church. Yeah, isn't it great? We don't need to feel like everything has to be for our moral instruction. That doesn't mean it should be perverted or depraved or that parts of our lives are outside of our Catholic faith, but that entertainment is a right and proper part of our experience of the world. And so what you were bringing up is how much violence can we rightfully say is entertaining? Yeah, because I guess we're talking about the moral restraint and the effects of that violence. Mm -hmm. I guess first it's the question to discuss whether or not trail of violence in film has an effect on us. Yes. And whether it makes people in general more violent. Because I think we've discussed this previously, not on the podcast, but we've discussed this particularly in terms of video games. Yeah. And whether like playing a video game and shooting people in that video game makes you more likely to go out and shoot someone in real life. Yeah. And I've always been more hesitant to come down, particularly because neither Phoebe nor I play video games in any real capacity. And I mean, we probably dabbled in them as a teenager. Yeah. And I have friends who really care about them and really advocate for the things that they are good for. And so I don't ever like to just dismiss things and I don't like to be part of that group that says, oh, these must be evil because I don't understand them and they're not for me. And I would say the same thing about horror movies, which is that... There's a part of me that feels that, particularly the gory ones, like this kind of slasher films, to me, obviously, they instinctually feel like they are outside of what Catholics should consider entertainment. But I'm still hesitant because I feel like they're not for me. And so I would rather hear someone who can articulate why they like them and why they think that they have a good in them, rather than just saying, well, they're not for me and I feel like they're bad, so they must be bad. Yeah, whereas I think the video games and then the violence in movies can call us to that higher instinctual like cause of fighting for the good yeah. or just also sheer entertainment, which is a good, which we yeah. are talking of as a, as a good. Yeah. So the first thing that I would really say about any kind of discussion on this topic is that the first qualifier I would put on any kind of media is the age of the audience. And actually the decree that I was just reading into Marifica really speaks about how people who are creating these kinds of media should be aware that a large part of their audience will be young people and how young people need to have special considerations when you're presenting media to them. And so when I was researching this, I called up my mum because my mum was very active in my life uh, always, but particularly in this area, in what she did allow and what she didn't allow us to watch. But the thing that I really remember were things that we were not allowed to watch at a certain age, we were allowed to watch later. And so the first qualifier I would put is that there's tendencies within all of us and tendencies towards sin, but there's also just qualifiers like your age and what you've experienced as a person and all of those kind of elements to it. And so I would say that there is a huge amount of things that as adults you can watch and not have it penetrate your soul in the same way. Whereas if you're watching them younger, you're more receptive and more easily molded by these things. Yeah, that just reminds me of a time when we were in the cinema. I think we were watching Italian Job, the new one. Yeah. Which is mainly like a car chase. And my mum ended up taking my younger sister out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that was partly because she just got bored. <laughs> yeah. I think my mum probably wasn't enjoying it that much either. But my yeah, also that kind of... Actually, no, maybe this isn't appropriate. 
Yeah, and the thing I really appreciated with my mum is that she doesn't, for her, watching a movie or something is is not her way of relaxing or her way of enjoying herself. And so she wouldn't necessarily have been inclined to spend a lot of time watching TV or watching movies. But she did take the time to assess the things that she was and wasn't letting us watch. It wasn't arbitrary and it wasn't based on hearsay that she did take the time to say, well... I don't like this because it presents it. And when I was talking to her this week, she said, particularly when we were younger, the thing that she was maybe most against was depictions of violence that were very realistic and close to home. And anything that was in any way heightened or overly dramatic, like superhero movies or um, anything fantastical, that to her, those were all fine in terms of how disturbing or not disturbing they were to young people, whereas something that shows domestic abuse might be much more disturbing, much more frightening, even if it's violence to a much lesser degree. Yeah, that's a really powerful point. But that I would say the things like domestic violence falls into those movies we were talking about where there's often, there can be a serious and meaningful message, but that you do need to build up to those and it's not that you sort of wait till you're 18 and then start watching meaningful movies but that parents and people with young people in their lives that it is about judging whether this is the right time for them to experience those kinds of stories. Yeah I think there's also a way in which you become desensitized to it and that part of that desensitization is a bad thing yeah and part of it is a good thing like we were talking about how mm. I used to watch more violent movies as a teenager like maybe 15 to 18 then I would watch now like I've really surprised you by turning around and went oh yeah I watched that yeah she, she catches <laughs> me off guard sometimes um but all of those I would have watched with my dad mm. because that was when he was watching tv and it was like evening chill time whereas then I remember doing a like 30 day fast from pretty much all movies or reading or like mm -hmm. not complete fasting but being very very cautious about what you were taking in yeah and that was far more to do with our desensitization to sexual representation than to violence but for both of them and after that just going back to it and looking at what I was watching with a new eye I was like mm, no so by the time you knew me in college my rating had gone way down. way down yeah I think that kind of desensitization is it is a real thing. It does really impact people. And I read a really interesting article and possibly the most interesting thing about it was that it did not come from a religious point of view at all. It was in the LA Review of Books and it was by Alessandro Camon. Uh, I'd really recommend reading it. Again, it was a just a thoughtful and insightful piece on someone who admitted when they were younger that they really relish in all of these violent movies and still do to to a certain extent but that they had taken the time to reflect on these aspects of it uh so the what they were saying is and I, phoebe mentioned that she wanted to bring in a more historical lens on how long have we been watching violent movies and the, their context in historical entertainment but he says since those days games and movies have become more graphic it's been called the pornography of violence but I think the expression might be misleading. With few exceptions, pornography's requirement is the lack of simulation. The sex might be contrived and emotionally fake, but it is physically real, and that's why people watch it. Movie violence works the other way around. People rely on the knowledge that it's not real in order to grant themselves permission to enjoy it. 
Some would probably watch it anyway. Executions remain public spectacles in parts of the world, and snuff videos from ISIS or the drug cartels have a global audience on the internet. Still, the crucial fact is that we know the difference. And then he goes on to say, Of course, not all movie violence is culturally valuable. The majority of it is just junk food for the mind. But there could hardly be great movie violence without the junky kind, because greatness is relative. The difference is for us to learn and decide, unless we prefer government bureaucrats to draw the lines between Travis Bickle, Rambo, Robocop, Scarface, Leatherface, Freddy Krueger, Death Wish, and A Cockwork Orange. This does not mean that there is no problem with movie violence. I think there is. And there's a break there, and he goes on to say, We are not being asked to think about the violence. In fact, we are being asked not to think about it. To the extent that we are invited to feel anything, it is through the identification with those who dispense righteous violence against villains, aliens, and monsters. An identification which is literal and complete in the case of first-person shooter games, where we stare at the world over the barrel of a gun. On a basic level... Commodification is the opposite of empathy. It is not that the individual is immediately affected, it is that our collective culture is being drained of compassion. The effect is incremental, generational, with built-in ways of eluding awareness. But eventually we lose empathy, and empathy itself loses its cultural currency. The problem is not that some violent movies make us more violent, but that an entire generation makes us less empathetic. Yeah, that's really interesting. You made what I want to say sound very grand. (laughs) (laughs) But I was thinking of it in terms of the Colosseum. Yeah. Which is also a very iconic film piece, I guess. Yeah, Um, you've got Gladiator, you've got all kinds of those films. But when I was there last year, I found it really interesting to hear the history of the games Mm -hmm. and what they were like way before the Colosseum was built. Yeah. And how they developed over time. Because, yeah, we think of the Colosseum as something kind of grand yeah. in a certain sense. But the guy who gave us a tour was telling us that the game started as a political move of the senators trying to gain popularity. Oh, come and watch this dog fight, this bull mm-hmm. fight. That, that exposition of violence escalated. Oh, come and watch this gladiator fight. And then they would use that opportunity of gathering the people to go, oh, free drinks or free food, and buy their votes that way. But by the time the Colosseum was built, a couple of centuries later, the games weren't one-on-one. They weren't even two-on-two. They were, or like five-on-five, they were massive spectacles of battle. Yeah, They they did battle reenactments. It wasn't like this great gladiator going out to fight. It was, they'd get all the gladiators, stand them out naked in the heat, so that everybody could prod and poke them yeah. for like three, four hours. And then they would make them fight. After you've seen the slaves fighting the lions. Mm-hmm. And even the slaves fighting the lions sounds far more glorious than it was. Because the slaves never had a chance. Yeah, they were, it was watching the slaves being eaten by the lions. Yeah, and they were armed, vaguely. So it wasn't the fact that they couldn't kill the lions. It was that there was an infinite amount of lions. And an infinite amount of slaves. If you killed five of the ten lions, they sent up another five. It was just an endless cycle of blood. Yeah. And then the same with the gladiators. Mm-hmm. They send up ten spearmen, ten like lancemen, ten swordsmen. Make them fight each other. Five fall, send up another five. Yeah. Another five falls, send up another five. Um, that kind of gruesome bloodshed on a massive scale was mm. what had evolved into the Colosseum. I think it's really interesting to see that kind of yeah escalation of the violence and more and more dramatic violence over time. Also, because to say the Colosseum, we think, oh, well, that was a very long time ago. But actually, 
things like public executions and really drawn out and really masochistic public executions were the norm up until quite recently. Like there is that fact that the first Star Wars movie was released in the same year that France stopped using the guillotine. Wow. (laughs) And towards the end of that time, they had become less and less public, but they were still used. But up until kind of not that long beforehand, public executions had continued to be a thing. And there was, in the centuries before that, there was a huge cultural movement around this, that this was an enormous cultural spectacle. And if you've got, I will say, if you've got a very strong stomach, I would recommend there's a podcast called Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, and he does really in-depth deep dives into different parts of history. And it was episode 61. It's called Painfotainment. And it's about the entertainment of pain. And uh, yeah, like I said, it's for people with really strong stomachs. I found it difficult to listen to, but it was genuinely fascinating to look at the history of executions and these aspects and how ubiquitous that they, they were, that so many people went to them. Like there was just endless crowds. And I think in some ways, I don't think it's wrong to be anxious about how much violence there is in films, but I think we have a misperceived idea of the stomach for violence in the past. Like we were saying, there's a difference now where you're seeing something that's a fiction on the screen, but that until recently our ancestors would have seen real people dying in real time. Yeah, I suppose the really interesting thing I found about the Colosseum was it goes from one-on-one people dying. Yeah to like, groups of people battling. Yeah. And I think that's a kind of escalation that we've seen in movies, yeah. but not necessarily in violence as much as in sex. In terms of like the overexposure and what it's shown in mainstream media. Yeah. Whereas, yes, movies have gotten more violent, but you've also probably developed a greater capacity to make it fake. Like CGI and mm-hmm. um, ways of actually portraying it without doing violence to people, which is the whole premise. So I hope that was kind of like at least a good overview and a good introduction. We're going to move into more like specific examples now because I noticed that the time is running on. Uh, Time is always running on. (laughs) The first thing that I want to touch on a little bit is I'm going to take a little bit of a detour and talk about my favourite Flannery (laughs) O'Connor. Phoebe is rolling her eyes as we speak. But the reason I'm going to talk about her is uh, she's a great example. Obviously she's not working in film but she is working in literature and of a specific Catholic perspective and a Catholic artist who is writing stories that have a lot of grotesqueness and violence in them. Again, I could pick from a thousand different quotes, but I will pull this one out first. With an almost defiant attitude, Flannery O'Connor expected to lose most of her readers. It was, in fact, her desire to assault the consciousness of the complacent and the worldly wise that induce her to place grotesque characters in violent circumstances. For her, the grotesque character was not an escape from realism, but rather an attempt to achieve a kind of spiritual super-realism, since both her experience and orthodoxy taught her that all humans are morally grotesque. Likewise, though violence is not an everyday occurrence, it enables a proper perspective, bringing the individual a sense of ultimate priority. And so what they're kind of driving at there is how she brings characters to a moment of accepting or rejecting grace that comes at the extremist experience of of human like suffering or violence that it's only when they're shaken out of this that they can experience it and the hope is that in reading this you would be able to access that openness to grace without 
being stared down at the barrel of a gun, essentially, you know? She'd have been a good woman if there'd been someone there to shoot her every day of her life. Exactly. That That is from one of her most famous short stories. If you know any Flannery O'Connor, you've probably read that A Good Man is Hard to Find. And that it really encapsulates it. So uh, at the end, a, a grandmother is killed and that she she had a last moment, which was her reach for redemption, where she opened herself up to, to love and the possibility of seeing her own brokenness. But it only happens when she's threatened with death. And that if only she had been able to access that without every day of her life. But the idea that if someone was there to shoot her every day of her life, then she would have been good. And so I think that's one of the really interesting things that Flannery O'Connor does. And the other thing that she kind of points out is that so much of the Catholic perspective is about embracing a kind of violence. Daniel Stewart, who is husband of the incredible Haley Stewart, who we've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast before, but he wrote a really excellent article for Word on Fire. And uh, he said, like many others who dislike Flannery, the critics seem to believe that she uses violence to get her point across, as if violence were merely a shocking tool wielded by a heavy-handed novelist. But this understanding of O'Connor's writing is quite simply wrong. Violence isn't a tool used to deliver a message, Violence is the message. We are supposed to become united with Christ in his crucifixion, the most violent of deaths. The violence isn't gratuitous, of course. Only in dying can we truly live, because only then can Christ fully live in us. So violence isn't a tool O'Connor uses to describe the Christian life. Instead, violence is the Christian life. Death in baptism all the way to death in our union with Christ. And the fact that so many of O'Connor's stories are saturated with this kind of violence is absolutely in line with scripture. Christ's death was once and for all, but we must die daily, as St. Paul put it in 1 Corinthians. Through this violence, we experience peace and fulfillment of life that is otherwise unimaginable. That there is an interior violence to yourself where you do need to cut off the things that don't belong to God. Yeah. Death and baptism all the way to death and I union with Christ. But that would also cover the courage to cut off consuming the films that don't lead us to God. Yeah. So it does work both ways. That it's not just about saying then that all violence is acceptable and we should just enjoy it. No. But that if fully embracing the Catholic life does involve embracing a kind of violence that you don't shirk away from. Yeah, and I think talking about the passion of Christ is the epicenter mm. of that violence that we are called to recall and to be present to. Yeah, and I think that's a really good segue for us to talk about the specific film examples that we wanted to talk about and their use of violence. So, like, obviously The Passion of the Christ, it is Good Friday. I've watched The Passion of the Christ on Good Friday and found it an incredibly moving experience. Many Catholics do. I will say that I don't think it's necessary for everyone to watch it. The The Vatican came out, I think it was in 1995, with a list of films that they recommended as great examples of, of film in the world. And they split them into different categories. There was one for religion, there was one for art. And I think a lot of people will be interested to find that there's quite a number of the films on that which do not fall into anything that people would expect the Vatican would be advocating. There's murder, there's incest, there's all kinds of violence and sex and gore in various ones. And then again, it's not a list saying that you should watch them. It's just a list saying that we believe that these are excellent examples of films. 
but they didn't go back and rewrite the list to include the Passion of the Christ. So that the, sounds like such a great list. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, as much as people can enjoy it, it, it wasn't deemed so necessary that they needed to revise the list specifically for the Passion of the Christ. Yeah, and I think there are definitely people in my life who I would not recommend mm-hmm. watch that movie. Yeah. It is brutal. And, I mean, we're possibly watching it this maybe, week. Maybe tomorrow. If we do, it'll be my second time ever seeing it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not very enthused about it. <laughs> I'm like... I mean, you suggested it. I suggested it. it, and I will put myself through it. Mm-hmm. But I also gave everybody else the option to suggest something else that we could also watch, and I'm really hoping somebody does that. <laughs> <laughs> because part of me just doesn't want to go through that and then there's a part of me that knows that there is a definite good there yeah and I will say it is a beautifully done movie I thought it was going to be worse than it was because they do always cut between the violence and like scenes from Christ the child they all meld together and those scenes really inform the violence that's happening as well so while I said at the start that we started this premise that well why is the passion of the Christ acceptable but lots of other violent films aren't I think there is a difference to the passion of the Christ I think it's one of the few examples where you see a film being used as a kind of prayer in the same way that we might do the stations of the cross that you would sit and watch this and there's a lot of debates of how accurate it is and how he was trying to be accurate and whether it was accurate or not. And there's also like anxieties about the portrayals of the Jewish society. The thing that really captures my imagination about the film is how much it condemns me and how much it makes me reflect on my contributions to that suffering, whether it's exactly accurate or whether it's a dramatic representation of it. Obviously, crucifixion would be horrific and brutal. So it, uh, obviously, I'm not saying that it, that if it wasn't exactly like that in history, that it wasn't brutal. But it really compels me to look at myself in it. And there was actually, it was interesting when I was looking this up, I found reports of people who had, when the film came out, they had handed themselves in for crimes they had committed years before. Wow. That it had compelled them that strongly. That's really powerful. I was thinking about how we were talking about public executions earlier. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, because we are now so far removed from that, yeah. that this kind of portrayal is deliberately suited to our time. Yeah. Because let alone we don't know what it means to see someone crucified. We don't know what it means to see someone hanged. Or even just die yeah. in their beds peacefully. We don't know. We're so it's... far removed from death itself, yeah. not just violent death. And there was an interesting point that was made in one of the articles I was reading about uh, the use of violence in films and the thing that we need to be aware of, which is that it has bred a kind of complacency around it, whereas violence was once used to, as we were talking about with Flannery O'Connor, to shake people out of their complacency. Now the use of violence is the complacency because it's just so easy to do and it, it's people are bound to enjoy it and people are bound to show up for it. And so The Passion of the Christ is one of the few examples which the violence is so not complacent it doesn't leave you feeling complacent yeah and I think it's one of those few examples where there's quite a big difference between violence itself and the gore that depicts the impact of that violence yeah like on a more basic level seeing someone shoot a gun Mm -hmm. to seeing the bullet go through someone yeah or seeing somebody punch someone to seeing like their nose break in slow motion yeah and I think 
The Passion of the Christ is one of the few examples of a movie where there is an excessive amount of gore Mm -hmm. as well as violence, and yet I would not remove that gore despite the fact that I cannot look at it. Yeah. I will be hiding behind my hands for half of the movie, (laughs) at least. The last time I watched this, I knew the scourging was 25 minutes long, so I just left the room for the scourging, (laughs) because I could not... Like, the rest of it was gruesome enough that I had to give myself that out. (laughs) And when I came back in, they had the sofas, like, kind of almost side by side, but slightly at an angle. Mm Mm-hmm to see the screen so I tucked myself between the two sofas so I could look at it kind of just above the level of the two and then duck myself down between <laughs> behind them my hands were no longer a good enough shield yeah yeah I can uh, that that one I can really understand and what it reminds me of I actually I talked about this film in this things that I was enjoying in the episode with Matthias on bringing back Catholic weirdness but uh, it was a film I watched recently called You Were Never Really Here it's a film I would love to explore more and hopefully at some point write an article about because it was such an interesting movie. It was about a hitman who uh, rescues young girls from sexual exploitation and that sounds like a fairly standard setup for a sort of revenge action movie. You can imagine Liam Neeson in, in the protagonist role and killing lots of bad guys and it's all very exciting and we can really hate the bad guys because they're these horrible paedophile politicians. You can't get worse than that. But it was so not the movie that you expect. Um, And it stars Joaquin Phoenix and it was directed by Lynn Ramsey. And it, at every point when you expected to get a really kick-ass fight scene, it pulled the camera back to the point where you almost couldn't see what was happening. And every time that there was an injury or something really personal or a personal death, that that's what they lingered on and that's what they didn't let you look away from in terms of the narrative of the movie and so while it really subverted your expectations because you it really made you question what were you hoping to see really probing like you wanted to get entertainment from this but actually we're going to show you the really hard reality of it and that when you break a tooth in in a fight you have to pull out that tooth and there's a bullet in you you probably have to pull out that bullet and it, it is really violent and really gory but a bit like the passion of the christ it really doesn't let you sit back and enjoy it in a way that it is keeping you on the edge of your seat and I thought it was a really insightful look at how to use violence in film and it did the same with the kind of exploitation of the girls they suggested what was happening rather than actually having these girls demonstrate exploitation and so it was again subverting your expectations whereas you might expect them to almost be exploited in another way by having to portray this on screen instead it just suggested it in a really powerful and disturbing way but that got the message across without being explicit i mean it sounds like a fascinating movie but not one that i will ever watch (laughs) yeah Um, i i mean maybe we'll get i I don't know it is a hard movie to watch but like i said i thought it was a really worthwhile movie so i i thought that was a really good example of the use of violence in movies yeah i suppose we would talk about mad max Fury road Yes. And I guess that kind of does the opposite most times in mm-hmm. that it does show you like the explosions and the violence mm-hmm. um, and the gunshots and it doesn't show you much of the gore. Yeah, for a movie that is quite a tense, scary, violent movie, you really, you, Phoebe, didn't really have to look away that much. That it was able to have this high adrenaline, high stakes, high action movie that was visceral because it it wasn't that it was glossy and easy to watch like an old James Bond movie or something it was very guttural 
but it didn't just be gruesome for the sake of being gruesome. Yeah, because there were definitely times when they cut away. Mm. Which I was very glad they had cut away. <laughs> yeah. Um, but even then, it was still a difficult movie to watch for me. Yeah. Um, because it still shows an excessive amount of that violence. And the violence, even without the gore, should still be very telling. And should still be making us uncomfortable. I think you challenged me on the, oh, well, do you just not want to see it because it makes you uncomfortable? And my response was, well, somebody firing gun makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> like, I don't need to see the bullet going through someone to be made uncomfortable by it. Yeah, I think that was one of the interesting points that we discussed in the run-up to this podcast, which is that I was saying that it is not the place of everyone to have the same tolerance for violence. It is not that everyone should feel the same way about seeing fight scenes or seeing injuries or battles or anything like that on film. You know, we all have our own tastes and we all have our own limits on what we can endure in terms of films. But that the only caveat I would put on it is that not that everyone should have to watch. And like I said, you shouldn't have to watch The Passion of the Christ. But the only thing that I would say is that you should make sure that you're reflecting on whether if this is coming from a place that you don't want to be shaken out of your bubble, it's that Flannery O'Connor quote that I have, that if it's just about preserving your own level of prim, proper comfort, that then you need to reflect on why that is and find, if it isn't through violent films or if it isn't through graphic depictions of the crucifix on paintings, like, you know, any of those aspects of it, that you should maybe find a way of encountering something that makes you uncomfortable in your faith that does open you up to the spirit, even just through prayer or something like that. Yeah, because I think... Inversely, there is also something good about preserving your innocence. Yeah, absolutely. You don't need to watch The Passion of the Christ to have a powerful meditation on his Mm -hmm. passion. That is true. Because there are those two things in, in tandem. Our innocence and our ability to not weigh ourselves down with the brokenness of the world is a good thing in the sense of being childlike but not childish. Yeah. But that we can't just let ourselves off the hook. And the point I was making is that on some level, if you're happy for there to be fights and battles in movies, but you're not happy to encounter the reality of what violence is, that's kind of a bit like having your cake and eating it too, in some ways. Just because that there is a level of discomfort that should come from the idea that these kind of moments only happen when you're in an extreme situation and you don't get to preserve yourself when you're in an extreme situation situation like that yeah I think the point I was making there is knowing what what will haunt you and what will not yeah and then for me what you said like whether you're happy to have the violence Mm -hmm. in the movies or whether you can just tolerate that Mm -hmm. which is a different thing I think if you're if I actively enjoyed sheer violent movies Mm -hmm. so long as there wasn't gore in them there would be a problem yeah but I literally look and go, and then I could just do with less violence in general. <laughs> like in yeah. Mad think... Max, where they where they turn around and yeah. you get a whole like second second act second of... act of violence. I mean, you were saying how much you enjoyed that kind of like simplicity of storyline. I'm there going like again. Did they have to? <laughs> again, yeah. I definitely think it's it is about looking to yourself and looking to your own brokenness and. 
and the things that you cherish about yourself as well that you you do cherish your ability to have a naivety and and, and see the the goodness and optimism of the world and if these kind of violent movies really impinges on that your innocence can be a gift from god as well like we said it will always be a gray area yeah and i mean neither of us are perfect in our like no. movie watching and and what you were saying there is where you were trying you asked me to come up with an example that i didn't enjoy violence in movies the the one that sprung to mind to me was one that again I don't want to condemn because I think it's a powerful movie that tells a very powerful moral but it's a film called Requiem for a Dream which is directed by Darren Aronofsky and is about how addiction completely devastates people's lives and the different kinds of addictions and how they can all they're almost taken to their most extreme ends in these various characters. And this was one you had to watch for college, right? Yeah, so I, I essentially only watched it because I had to watch it for a, a class that I was taking on film musicality. And it's a very well-made movie. It's a movie that tells a very powerful message. Uh, but at the end, it presents, I think it's five different tableaus of the people now at the very ends of their addictions. And... The, those tableaus are so bleak and so depressing, such an assault on the dignity of humanity that it has really haunted me. And I felt similarly about the film Seven. There's a, a serial killer who kills people to represent the seven different vices. And again, it's a sort of tableau where you're presented with this particular image of a particular vice and how it's been manipulated to cause a particular death. And I found both of those examples, partly because they set up such a visual moment, very haunting. But like I said, again, I'm not actually saying that I don't think that movie should exist, but in a way, because that wasn't something that I was really struggling with in my life, I almost didn't need that heavy a club to get that message across my head. And so it's... Yeah, I think that's kind of the big issue. Like, <laughs> I didn't need the club to be that heavy. A little stick would have done. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, for some people, maybe the club might turn their life around. So that's why I don't want to come down against it. But, I, yeah, that was definitely an example where I felt afterwards like, oh, I probably could have done without seeing that. I think there's also definitely a level of knowing what will make you uncomfortable but still call you to appreciate great things in that movie. Yeah. Um, like even in Mad Max Fury Road, one of the things I really wanted to see was you talk like the, the portrayal of women in that and yeah. how that was really well done. Yeah. So there were parts to the movie that I was interested in. Aside um, from aside just the violence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas then there's also then knowing what will haunt you and being able to make that judgment call of, no, no, that will stick with me and haunt me. Mm -hmm. I will not put that in my brain. Yeah. And so we're really running a long time. So we're just going to quickly touch on two more films. I'll quickly touch on one because Phoebe hasn't seen it. And then we'll move on to our last film. So the one that I want to talk about was Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which was my favourite film of 2017. I thought it was incredible. Really, really interesting very a very Flannery O'Connor film so that's no surprise there one of the contentious things about it was that there was a character in it who was portrayed as a racist and a violent cop and he goes through a redemption arc and there was quite a few critics saying do we really need to sympathize with all of these horrible racist people that do really exist in the world and this movie is forcing us to try and be on his side and for me, I felt like that was kind of missing the point of the film, which is that redemption is possible for all kinds of people and can be 
grasped that in their own muddling, often messed up ways. And it goes back to what Pope John Paul II said about how these morally depraved characters are still teaching us something about the desire for redemption. I think they give us an important compassion as well. Yeah, so there is a review of it in the Catholic Stand, which was called The Scandal of Forgiveness in Three, in three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, where they said, take one critic who says that he will admit concern in this current environment about how much sympathy we should have for a guy like Dixon. Still, McDonough makes movies for folks who can deal with nuance, and I won't hold complexity against a movie just because of the absurd period in which we live. Indeed, this critic, I think, does not quite see or want to embrace the point that forgiveness is shocking, hard, and cries out against our every instinct to seek blood. Twas ever thus. So that was an example, for me anyway, of a film that was challenging our ideas of how a good person can have a violent past or can have done these terrible things. And then we were saying still seek for redemption. And that kind of leads us into our final film, which was Hacksaw Ridge, which we've mentioned briefly and ties in because obviously it was directed by Mel Gibson, obviously did The Passion of the Christ as well. And it yeah, was... Yeah, I think if we're talking about any movie where I've put myself way out of my comfort zone yeah. and been very glad I did, despite the fact that it haunted me for ages, <laughs> um, you can talk about this one. Yeah, it's a war movie... And it's a very violently graphic war movie, but it's about a real story of a, a man called Desmond Doss who was a pacifist and a seven-day Adventist, which his faith forbade him from carrying out any violence against anyone. Well, I think in more in particular, his own, his own, partic- his own personal belief yeah. forbade it, particularly from childhood experience. Yes. That he literally would not touch a gun. Yeah. But like we were saying, it wasn't that he thought all of the war was wrong. It was just that he personally couldn't hold a weapon. And so he still wanted to contribute. Yeah. And- this is set in America. Yeah. So it's not conscription. It's, it's voluntary. Yeah. Voluntary and- signing up for this. And he signed up to be a medic and was sent out to fight the Japanese and ended up on this incredibly horrific battlefield which was at the top of a cliff called Hacksaw Ridge which is where the name comes from and it's a a really breathtaking movie and I am amazed that Phoebe watched it. I mean I will point out that I had personal reasons to watch it. One was that at the time when it was coming out I was with a friend in Singapore And then we travelled to Malaysia and she was looking to watch it possibly while we were in Malaysia Mm -hmm. and then found out that it had been banned in the cinemas there, partly because of its religious views and partly because of its pacifism. So anything that's banned, (laughs) I mean, for particularly banned for its Christian views. You'll stubbornly say. I may stubbornly just put my foot down and watch it when I get the chance. So I watched it, I think, the last night in Singapore Mm -hmm. with Kieran. And, I mean, I was so glad I went to see it with her because she's one of the gentlest people I know and she'd have otherwise gone alone. (laughs) And, I mean, I was also glad to see it from a point of view of seeing that kind of horrific depiction of World War Two. Yeah. Because it's something that's so integral to our history and integral to my history, personally, because... I have ancestors who fought in that war. Yeah. On the British side. So not, like, against Japanese. But I think still to have an awareness of what they went through just gave me that more, oh, that's what it means. That's what warfare today even looks like. It really gives you that sense of being in the middle of a battle and that feeling of 
chaos and fear and that there is an oppressive force of violence around you. And where there are no heroes because they are all heroes. Yeah. You do have one guy that you're rooting for in particular, obviously, but the guys he's fighting with, even the guys who bullied him in training, are the ones going out and giving their lives. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a very profound film. I mean, I could keep going on, but I think those are a couple of really good examples, particularly of recent films that have tackled the violence aspect of them in not a kind of carbon copy way, but they have taken stock of what they're trying to say and accordingly adjusted the way that they portray violence to give us a message or to give us a type of story that we haven't necessarily seen before. Yeah, like Hacksaw Ridge is so powerful because it is that violent. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now that we have run way over, <laughs> well. I, I, I think we better wrap up. And so we have our one final question, which is, Phoebe, what are you enjoying today? Well, because it's Pam Sunday, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the liturgy this morning. It's um, a great liturgy. It's a great liturgy. In which you have some very violent moments. Yeah, exactly. But also just looking, I'm looking forward to all of the wonderful liturgy coming up to Easter. I think it's such a powerful time for us. It's mm-hmm. kind of the great liturgy of the church. Yeah. You're like, oh yes, this is what it is. This is the moment. This is our highlight of the year. It's the climax, yeah. It's brilliant. Okay, so you're enjoying the liturgy. How very Catholic of you. (laughs) Naturally. I'll go more mainstream and do some more cultural stuff. Uh, First of all, I'll say that Phoebe and I and our friend Aoife went to the cinema uh, last week and we got to see Guys and Dolls. Oh yes, that was great. uh, Yeah, it was our first time seeing it and it was tremendous fun. I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, your face while watching that. We were sitting in these great armchairs and Rachel would just lean around every now and then and look at me and go... A look of delight on my face. Shugly. And um, totally worth it. Yes. And then also this week, I was very fortunate to go see Warhorse, uh, the play in the big theatre here in Dublin. And actually, that's another really good example. They really amp up the sound effects, particularly during the war scenes in World War One, for that play. So again, feels very much like a bit of an assault on your senses in those moments. But along with that, the staging is incredible. Of course, the puppets are incredible. That's the thing it's very famous for, the, the horses as puppets, and they have lots of other animals which are puppets and incredibly done. I really liked, they have this, essentially like, it looks like a strip of paper that's across the whole width of the stage that changes the background for you in an illustration style so like as they're moving you'll see different illustrations of things going past and it also puts up the date so you know what section of the war you're in which were done beautifully so I really enjoyed that so those are the two that I enjoyed and I think all that is left to say is have a very solemn good Friday and have a very happy Easter yeah happy Easter guys enjoy and we'll talk to you soon goodbye This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.